Welcome to the Global Development Review Podcast. I am Jafar Latif Najjar. This podcast aims to highlight life and struggle in Gaza with a Palestinian woman perspective. My guest today is Rana Shobir. She is a Palestinian activist, writer and author of two books. She has been contributing her articles at different platforms today we will learn from her experiences of being living in gaza and her perspective of the ongoing aggressions and life in palestine at present times i welcome rana to global development review podcast once again thank you very much rana so uh, it's being a pleasure to be for you uh, hosting you here and uh, we have been you know uh, seen a lot of uh, tensions escalating in in israel so and lot of uh, people in 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 my circle are also worried about it and uh, i just wanted to uh, show my solidarity with the people of palestine first and uh, and this idea has come up that we should do a podcast or uh, we should also do, write some blog article to understand what is happening on ground and what is the perspective of palestinians uh, and what is the historical background because many of the people don't know about the you know historical facts and what is happening at the present time so this is basically this discussion is about all uh, uh, palestinian perspective and especially uh, i am looking forward uh, as a palestinian woman uh, the perspective of a palestinian woman on the entire discourse so welcome uh, to again uh, before uh, starting uh, into uh, discussing the details about what is the historical background of palestine i just want to know something about yourself and uh, what what are you doing and yeah what are your contributions yes. um, yeah uh my name is rana shbir i am a palestinian from the gaza strip um um i my main uh i i mean my main uh, major is english language and translation uh, uh i'm a freelance trainer and translator and I'm an author of two books um my first book was published in 2016 uh it's a non-fiction uh it's a memoir called in gaza i dare to dream um and it, this book is mainly about my daily life under occupation under siege and um also the life of my of raising of how i raised my children under blockades under attacks under aggression Uh, Israeli aggression and so it's basically it, it's a story about me but it also represents what my people go through um uh and I published this book in 2016 uh, it's available on Amazon uh two years ago I decided to write a fiction uh, a historical fiction about Palestine it's called 
My Love is a Freedom Fighter. Um, it's a historical uh, romance, and um, it was my first attempt at writing fiction, and I was very pleased that uh, I could portray also the life of my people through this fiction. Uh, I'm working currently on a third book, and I've published um, numerous articles on different media outlets like Mondo West, uh, Middle East Monitor, We Are Numbers. Um, I also contributed uh, through um, uh, contributed uh, during the Great Return March. Um, I'm sure you have heard about this, which took place in 2018, yeah. um, where the Palestinians protested. Uh, they took to the separations and they protested for over 85 weeks. And I wrote numerous articles about my experience there because I was uh, I went there almost every week and witnessed these protests and the shooting and killing of people there. Um, so this is basically what I do with my life. I, uh, I write and I, um, uh, I'm an activist. Uh, I'm currently studying uh, a master's in creative writing at the University of Hull in their online program. So, and I'm a recent survivor of this, the latest aggression on Gaza Strip, which just um, took place uh, the last week. And um, it's really a miracle. I can't really describe in words what it means to have survived this fourth major aggression against Gaza Strip. And I think this um, this experience calls for me to write a new book about this these 11 days alone. So, yeah, and I have three children, um, two girls and one boy. They're triplets. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. it. Very, very inspiring uh, introduction, uh, Rana. So I would start f actually from your book because you shared that you have written book uh, and you have written about being a mother in Gaza. So, uh, and that's that's very, uh, you know, uh, fascinating to know uh, that how, how is the experience of a being mother in a Gaza and... Uh, especially especially in present time when you know the childrens are under such an extreme uh, you know and they're facing violence and yeah so what 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 you see that being mother in gaza represents uh-huh um a mother in gaza um the hero for me i can say she's she's the heroine of this environment because as mothers we have we we know we don't we are stereotyped maybe in the Western world that we have domestic roles, but this is not the case. Uh, mothers, wives, daughters, uh, sisters—they all have a pivotal role in in the Palestinian society and the Palestinian resistance. So when I first had my children, I had hoped that by the time they grew up occupation would have ended and this um, all this terror and, and killing and murder would have stopped. But I found myself confronted with new um, realities and much harsher ones. I mean, for me, I grew up under occupation, uh, but it wasn't as brutal as the occupation that my, my, the, my kids um, have witnessed and their generation. Uh, because there was no aerial bombardment back then. It was just occupation on the ground. And uh, so I have, so as my children grew up, uh, they started asking me questions. Um, sometimes I couldn't find an answer to. 
so first, like one of my most famous posts I wrote, uh, entries in my book, was that well, there was a debate between my twin daughters. One of them was, they were arguing, they were nine years old, and they were arguing about where they lived. So one was saying, uh, we live in Gaza, and the so other one was saying, no, no, we don't live in Gaza, we live in Palestine. So I, I overheard them, I was in the living room, and I overheard their conversation, and I mean, my heart was broken because my own kids, they're living in their own country, they don't know where they're located. They think that Palestine is a far away land. They learn about they learn about Palestinian cities in their in their school textbooks. They learn about Hebron, they learn about Bethlehem, they learn about Yap and all these cities, but they've never seen them and they're not allowed to go and visit their own country. So there was this dilemma, I mean, in their minds, like if we live in Gaza, how come we can't go? if we live in Palestine, how come we can't see it? So um, as a mother, I mean, I have found myself put in these kind of situations where I've had to explain to them, you know, why we can't go there, that there's something called Israeli occupation and that they prevent us from visiting our own country. And um, this was one issue. Another issue that um, they were faced with was something, um, you know, about the prisoners, the Palestinian prisoners. This is something um, also included in their school curriculum. So one day my son um, came home and he, he wanted to make a poster uh, about a post. We wanted to print one of the lessons on a poster. This is something that teachers often ask children to do for extra credit. So um, when he came back home and he brought the poster, the poster was like, it was a four line um, lesson uh, from their Arabic uh, textbook. And it had a picture of a girl who was just released from prison. Her name was Wafa. So um, I read I read the four lines. It said that um, the mother was happy that Wafat was finally released from prison. And um, she said that when Ayman, her other son, is released, our, our happiness will be complete. So my son asked me, Mom, did she steal something? So I'm, I just started crying when he asked me that question because... So they're, they're innocent minds, you know, they, they think that, you know, how... People, bad people go to prison, you know. So I had, I mean, he was so young, but I had to explain to him what that there were prisoners in our country and why they were imprisoned. So um, you can, I mean, sometimes you try to detach your children from this environment, but you can't. You're walking down the street, you see pictures of martyrs plastered on walls everywhere. And they would ask you, who are these people? Who are these men on the walls? And you would have to say to them, they're martyrs. Uh, and what's a martyr? Somebody that gets killed and goes to heaven. So um, one day my son came home and he said, he had this enchanted look on his face and he said, Mom, I want to go see the hole where they put the martyrs in. Oh. So I was really shocked at that moment because I didn't know where he got this information from. It wasn't for me, but I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't put your children in, in a shell and, you know, um, prevent them from hearing what's going on outside. No matter how, no matter what you do for them, but you can't, you can't detach them from this environment, and uh, this is something that um, it's very uh, painful for us as parents and as mothers. You can't, uh, you can't raise your children in a dream-like world. You don't go through the normal phases of childhood like other children outside do. Now they can, they can tell you what kind of plane is um, flying above, what kind of warplane it is what kind of rockets or missiles are being launched. They have all this terminology in their minds, which is 
way above their age. Um, uh, now, at this point in my life, I mean, my children, they're now 15, almost 16 years old. They know everything, and sometimes they help me deal with the stress of living here. So um, I don't hide anything from them anymore, and they know more than they should know. Um, but this is something that's unavoidable, and as Palestinian parents, you have to raise your kids um, in this kind of environment, and you have to teach them how to deal with it, how to be strong, how to be resilient, because you have no other choice, really. So it's really a very um, heavy task, if I can state it that way. Yeah. Uh, you, were, you were mentioning that, uh, you know, your own children doesn't know about the like state of Palestine because they are not allowed to, you know, move and travel to other parts of the uh, Palestine state. So it brings me to the question about the historical, um, uh, you know, context of Palestine. And uh, I just would like to you to reflect on that. What actually is right now the situation there and what was uh, Palestine when the, you know, this uh, colonial uh, settler colonialism started? Well, uh, I'm not sure how far you want me to go back in history, but um, uh, the Palestinian Nakba, which we just commemorated last week during the aggression, actually started in May 15, 1948, when Israel declared its state, and it's a day they celebrate as Independence Day, actually. Um, so this Nakba started when... Um, the, is the Israeli um, gangs and militias um, invaded Palestinian villages. Of course, this came after the British mandate of Palestine um, left. You know, it was the British mandate. And then after the British, um, they gave the, the Jewish people the, uh, a promise to a land in Palestine. Um, the Zionists took over and they, uh, they invaded villages committed um, very gruesome massacres. Almost about uh, 100,000 people were killed and uh, many people uh, fled from their, from their villages and cities to Gaza, to, um, to Lebanon and Jordan later on, and to Syria, where they lived in camps. And in Gaza today, 80% of the population consists of refugees. Uh, after, uh, in 1967, uh, the, the Israelis, um, occupied, uh, the Gaza Strip and the Golan Heights and the West Bank and the Sinai uh, Peninsula. And this lasted till 2005. Um, of course, before that, before, before 2005, in 1987, the first Intifada broke out. Uh, this lasted, it lasted from 1987 till 1993. It was called uh, the Intifada of the Rocks because the Palestinian youth mainly depended, only had rocks actually to confront the Israeli occupation uh, on the ground. And um, uh, the, this, the first Intifada ended with the, uh, uh, with the uh, Oslo Agreement, which was in 1993. Um, the Oslo Agreement was um, supposedly uh, um, supposed to bring peace to the Palestinian people, um, but um, this only in, on the Oslo Agreement, 
the Israelis' um, confiscation of Palestinian lands, um, incarceration of uh, Palestinian uh, youth and figures didn't stop um, uh, all of its um, apartheid uh, and racist uh, tactics continued under the Oslo Agreement. Nothing changed. And in, in the year 2000, uh, the Pri Israeli Prime Minister Elia Sharon uh, stormed into Al-Aqsa Mosque with some of his, uh, like a dozen of his soldiers, and it was uh, as a provocative act. And uh, it, was it was September of the year 2000 when the second intifada broke out. It was called uh, Al-Aqsa Intifada. And this, uh, this was like a new phase of, uh, of death, of killing, of horror, because this, is, this was the start of the aerial bombings. And under Ariel Sharon, uh, the Israeli army would bomb, I mean, anything, just name cars, civilian cars, um, bombed houses, they bombed uh, a neighborhood. This was a very famous incident when they bombed uh, one of the Hamas political figures um, in 2002, I believe, and they, they, they bombed a whole neighborhood just to kill him. And... Uh, this was in July of 2002, and they also bombed government buildings, police uh, academies, um, in, uh, medical institutions, schools. This lasted till 2005 when Ariel Sharon decided to disengage from Gaza. So what happened was that they pulled out from Gaza, and there were settlements, of course. There were settlers living in Gaza ever uh, since 1967. They pulled out, and they tore down their settlements, and they um, they went into Israel. And um, after that, but they still continue to occupy air and the sea, and, of course, the borders and the entries and exits to Gaza. Um, so this, yeah, this took place in 2005. In 2006, um, uh, uh, the Palestinians decided to have fair and impartial elections and democratic elections as hailed by the world. And they did. They ha they had their first elections, and um, Hamas won by a landslide victory. Ever since, we have been under um, a complete aerial land and sea uh, blockade, where uh, where life has deteriorated on every level. Um, travel is difficult. Um, we have we hardly get power, electricity. Um, uh, Israel dictates what goes in and out, the goods that can come in, and um, the economy has plunged, and unemployment among youth is over 50%. So this is the current status quo. Of course, um, during the siege and being under blockade, we were, ex we were um, exposed to three or four now, four major Israeli aggressions. One, the first one was in 2008, second was in 2012, the third it was 2014, and the latest was just last week. Of course, there were on and off um, other escalations in between, but this led to even more destruction, uh, more uh, murders, and more homelessness, more displacement. Um, and um, I mean, I, I can't get into much detail, but the overall picture right now in Gaza is that when you just walk down the street, you see. Um, destroyed buildings, just a big, big pile of rubble everywhere. We only get four hours of electricity now because the, the electricity lines were um, damaged during the shelling. 
and bombing and also terror uh, networks um, it affected. I mean, this this last escalation uh, affected every aspect of our life. We're still waking up from this nightmare. Um, schools were uh, targeted, government places, the uh, hospitals, uh, houses. I mean, there were so many apartments uh, and houses that were directly targeted and the the dwellers, the residents even given warning in these houses. So this led to complete families being wiped out. One, two of these families actually just lived down my street. I live in a Riman neighborhood. It's in the western part of Gaza City. And they, these two um, families, um, their houses just tumbled over their heads and destroyed them they slept. Um, so the situation is very, um, I, I don't think um, it's, it's unimaginable and be hard for someone outside to really, to really fathom the extremity and intensity of, of, of being, um, of living through all this horror. Yeah, so this is just in a nutshell what's um, been yeah. going on. Yeah, it, it also brought me to this question like, <laughs> when uh, those whom, whom houses are being targeted so where do those you, I'm sorry, could you raise your voice could okay. you just raise your voice yeah yeah so i'm saying that um, it also brings me to the question that those uh, whom houses are being targeted uh, where do they leave those residents who are like for example the buildings that we are seeing that being targeted by uh, israeli forces so where do they go after those destructions yeah and you and, mean and, the people yeah the people and also like uh, what is actually in the the struggle in ordinary life of uh, like uh, palestinian there right now in in present times in, under these aggressions and the violence from the israel yeah, so, the, so the people whose houses were targeted, the ones that were lucky to get warning, um, like some of the the, the 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 tall buildings that were targeted here in Gaza, they were warned because you know they consist of at least like ten ten stories, with each story having four apartments maybe. So these towers, which were warned, um, the people just imagined they they suddenly fled. Their, their homes, and they would go, some of them maybe would go to nearby relatives, some of them um, would go um, to UNRWA schools, and um, it was, I believe, um, many of them um, took, they, 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 they um, sought refuge in UNRWA schools because they're supposed, or they're presumably safer places to be because they assumed that Israel would not target an, a UN school. But this, I mean, in 2008 and 2014, they did target schools and they killed the pe people who sought refuge in those schools. Um, uh, there is no safe place. Like, if I wanted to leave my home and go to another home, it doesn't mean that I'm going to a safer place. Because one of, like, uh, two, uh, two families I know, uh, what happened to them was that they were, um, that one of the women went to her parents' house and she was killed there. So um, it's like it's another form of displacement inside Gaza, Gaza Strip. And uh, these people really have nowhere to go. Um, um, well, I'm, I'm sorry, your other, um, the other part of your question was... Yeah, so other question was like, uh, basically, 
how would you describe like an ordinary Palestinian life in present time? Like you are talking about electricity, health, yeah. also the healthcare is an issue, and especially when when you don't have access to other part of the uh, Palestine or other part of the world. So how is the struggle of ordinary Palestinian there? So, yeah. yeah. Um, well, a life of an ordinary Palestinian here is not ordinary <laughs> because, um, like I said before, you try to live a normal life for you. You know, you just wake up and have coffee and you want to have a nice day. Um, but it seems that, uh, you know, the way that life under blockades has been imposed on us deprives you from having a, a normal life. And of being, you know, there, for, for example, you know, the electricity crisis, it's been going on for as long as I've been. And it, it, sometimes uh, on a, in a good day, in good times, you would get eight hours of electricity, like every eight hours. So that would mean twice a day, like eight hours on, eight hours off. So this is when we have good electricity. Um, sometimes you would get as, um, as less as four hours uh, of electricity a day. And just imagine this, I mean, this affects every aspect of life. It affects the education system, the healthcare system. They, they have to look for alternative sources of energy, uh, whether it's generators or solar energy. And uh, of course, this all, um, it affects, it, it, it's very expensive to, to have these so, uh, alternative sources of energy, but you will not find, uh, I mean, every, almost every, Every institution has to have some kind of um, other, you know, source of energy. Um, like in my in my building, we have a generator, and then we have a UPS system. So when this goes off, you turn something else on to charge your phone, uh, to charge your laptop. Um, like I want to do, uh, I want to wash clothes. Just you know, operate my washing machine. I have to wait for the electricity to come on. It's really very hectic when it comes to electricity. And right now, because the weather is getting hot, it becomes, you know, the electricity um, crisis gets worse with, you know, with the, in summer. Um, this is one aspect. Another thing is that we have, we have, like, the drones, the Israeli drones do not leave our sky. And these drones, they're surveillance drones, but they can also shoot and kill because they've been used in the latest aggressions to um, target specific, you know, targets, uh, buildings or whatever. Um, so it's not safe. Like you would think that it just, it's a surveillance drone, you know, just filming and taking pictures. But um, two years ago, uh, children were playing in a nearby park and they were targeted by a drone and killed on the spot. So we need this drone, you know, like um, day and night, you, you're, you're, you're trying to, uh, you can't ignore the noise. You can't uh, pretend that it's not there. It's, it has this very annoying buzzing sound that doesn't stop. And it just continuously reminds you that there is danger in the sky. And, uh, you know, sometimes we, we want to go to the beach and have a nice day. But when you hear the drone, it's like, you know, you always have this, these bad thoughts in the back of your head. And like for me, sometimes I just go home because, um, not because it's safer home, but, but because um, I don't want to be out if something happens, you know. I always have these images of, you know, uh, 
2006, there was a girl named Huda Ghalia. Her story is very famous. And she was, she was on the beach with her family. And they were killed on the beach as they were swimming, and they, as they were having a family gathering. Her father was killed in front of her eyes. And this, this story just continuously haunts me as a mother. And um, I can't really pretend that nothing is going to happen. So very, life here is very unstable and unpredictable. You never know when something is going to happen. And um, uh, you can't, I mean, you just live day by day. Um, like today, uh, I have, uh, today was okay and we were safe. Okay, thank God. Tomorrow morning, I don't know what's going to happen. So, I mean, there is no, there is no sense of stability in, in life here. As so for the healthcare system, I mean, the healthcare system under the block it is suffering uh, from shortage in medical equipment and medicines. Uh, during the beginning of the siege, I mean, many people died because of shortage of medicine and because they were denied um, travel for treatment. You know, as an occ occupying power, Israel has the authority, has the legal, uh, I mean, to offer treatment to to the people under occupation. But if you want to travel for, for treatment, uh, there are only two exits there. You, you either go north to inside uh, Occupy Palestine, uh, Israel, to get treatment, and not everybody gets um, a permit to go there. Um, sometimes you can get a permit, but you can't have someone accompany you. Some, uh, uh, at some point, children with cancer... They, they, they weren't. They, they had to travel alone. Just imagine a child having to travel alone without, her, without their parents, one of their parents to accompany them. Uh, and the other, um, the other uh, exit is through the Rafah border, controlled by Egypt. And this, uh, and this border is a, is a different. It's, it's. I mean, it's a whole new story. Of its on its own because the Egyptians are complicit in this siege on Gaza and they have had their share of, you know, just closing down the border for months. Over, I mean, for for very long months. And when they open it, they would open it for like a couple of days, and not everybody would get the chance to travel, whether for treatment or for study or to re reunite with family. Um, so it has always the healthcare system is very. Uh, uh, it's very, it's barely surviving. Actually, um, it depends on um, appeals, and uh, it, it keeps appealing to the world to, you know, to um, help them uh, bring in medicine, bring in um, medical staff as well. I mean, during the uh, the latest aggression, uh, just last week, some some foreign doctors were allowed to come in to perform, uh, you know, um, operations here in Gaza because. We don't have um, enough medical staff or specialized medical staff to perform uh, complicated operations. So we're always in need of doctors. We're always in need of medicine. And the closing of the borders always obstructs this, you know, having uh, a, a naturally uh, operating healthcare system. Um, the education sector um, also has had their share of attacks and um it's uh, there's always shortage in um, uh, uh, school supplies in uh, in electricity. I mean, one of the stories I keep recalling is that when my children were young, um, they had they went to school one day and the electricity was off, 
schools, you know, they 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 don't have uh, much support, uh, financial support here. So, my 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 daughter said, "Mom, the the teacher told us to bring in like a flashlight, or you know, a light to uh, to use in the classroom because the classroom was dark. They couldn't see the board. Uh, many of the kids have uh, you know have problems, uh, you know, just looking and seeing what the teacher is writing on the board." And um, uh, in 2008, the, the major, the first attack happened when children were at school. And uh, some children got killed, actually, because it was, it was the time when the two shifts, the morning shift and the afternoon shift, were, um, uh, were um, going home and going to school. And the attack was like 11.30 a.m. And this caused um, uh, lots of chaos and children were killed at that moment. So uh, schools um, also are not uh, are also suffering the education system, and I mean every aspect of life here is affected by this blockade. Yeah, and it also uh, like impact uh, how it impacts economy, like the people uh, well-being. Uh, also, uh, like for example, uh, the mental health of the people there also, and the economical status of the Palestine. How do people? Uh, do economic activities there so both mental health and economic activities I'm sorry you're asking about the mental health yeah yeah I'm asking about uh, the mental health and the uh, economic activities like how uh, like as a businessman uh, or as an economy of the Palestine works and also how this uh, entire uh, tension is creating mental health situation uh, in Palestine. Yeah. Well, the economy, uh, I don't have statistics with me at the moment, but I know that the unemployment rate is very high, especially among young people. It's over 50%. Um, I mean, you know, pa Gaza and Palestine in general has a very high literacy rate. People here love to get education. Uh, I mean... Even fem females, more than males, continue their um, their uh, their uh, university education, but then they're faced with you know with the after they graduate they find themselves without you know with no opportunity. Um, they barely find they can they can't find they can't find jobs. They try to travel to look for another you know source of livelihood. And um, it's very, um, this, the economic situation is very bad because um, the, uh, uh, I think you would need figures actually and statistics, but I'm sorry I don't have them at the moment. But from what I see on the ground is that um, the, the export and import is not very active, uh, especially, uh, I mean, the, there are heavy taxes uh, imposed on the, you know, uh, people who, on the merchants, on the owners of businesses. Um, there, I mean, like, if I want to take an example of, let's say, training, because um, this is my, something that I deal with, is training institutions, for example, they have, they have no customers because um, I, I give English language courses. It's not, I go to give a course, I can only find, like, four people uh, um, signed up for the course because, I mean, people don't have that luxury of paying for a training course. Um, uh, they don't have, uh, they, it's, it's, um, it's regarded as something, you know, um, not essential. They, pe the, their, main, their primary 
um, concern is to have food on the table. But other luxuries in life, um, including training courses, are not. They're not being. They're not uh, able to afford these kinds of things. Um, so this has affected. I know personal friends who have shut down their centers because they had no customers. And I see this often when I walk down the street that stores have shut down because, uh, you know, people don't have money to buy things. They just, um, they, 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 they rely mainly on, um, their main concern is having the bare necessities in, in life. Um, the mental health, the mental health of the people here is another story. Uh, I know in other countries that people have, like families have a therapist and they, every time they, they have any kind of problem, they would go see the therapist, but we don't have this culture in our community because um, people can't afford this kind of, you know, uh, of treatment. Like right now, we just came out of a very brutal aggression. I mean, personally, I think all of us are traumatized in one way or other, and we need to go and see see um, professionals so we can heal ourselves. But many people are they're just concerned about going back to life and you know um, going fixing their homes, putting food on the table. Somebody would have to. Um, I think this would need um, international aid aid projects who would come and. Um, you know, offer mental health support to, to our people because the people who don't have that culture in their mind to go and get some kind of treatment. If I wanted to do this, I would just do it on a personal level. But children, children are the most affected group among uh, people here, especially after the attacks. I see children of my people I know, which have you know started to wet themselves at night because of the fear. Uh, many um, have uh, this also the fear and horror they witnessed of having seen a family member killed in front of them or having lost, you know, a mother, a father, um, a family member. I think this has long term effects on them and they need um, special uh, uh, special um, health care, uh, mental care workers to to come and, and give them support. One of my personal friends um, in this was killed in a massacre just down my street. She was killed along with her husband and two of her sons. So one of the sons survived. So just imagine what kind of life he's going to have. Having witnessed, I mean, he, he was in the same room when his parents were killed and his brothers. And now he, 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 was, um, he survived. So, so he's going to live with this for the rest of his life. So, I mean, the mental health, the mental uh, health situation here is, is not very good. And I think it affects people in different ways. And it has, on the long run, it will have um, um, uh, very um, bad effects on people. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you would need maybe a specialist to talk in detail about this. So, I'm just um, giving you a picture of what, like, how I'm feeling at the moment, how yeah. my children are feeling. And the people around me. I, I can imagine and that's why I asked because I know like the aggression and the kind of uh, you know the the brutality that Israelis forces are bringing there definitely would bring trauma also uh, among the people and uh, you were talking about children and we uh, like we have seen that children have become uh, you know very easy target over the years to the Israeli forces and uh, I just would like to understand like how the situation of children there and uh, and and why why they are targeting them so much uh, now 
like are they, they well, were targeting why were targeted? Yeah. Um, yeah, well in the latest aggression 66 children were killed. Yeah. And 39 women among the 255 uh, yes, um, martyrs or people killed so because that was because they made the Israelis mainly targeted homes and civilian structures. I mean, just um, think of complete families being wiped out as they slept in the, inside their homes. Why would they target a home um, which has, I mean, uh, I don't know what assumptions, what allegations the Israelis have uh, behind targeting homes. But it is not acceptable. It's against, it's against everything. It's against international law. It's against humanity. Um, there, even the, the residential buildings. I mean, one of the buildings that was targeted was a media building. It, it housed about uh, like 17 uh, different international media um, agencies. Um, one of them is Al Jazeera, and one of them is Associated Press. And they targeted this building. I mean, well, I mean this. This building was clear. There were no fighters in this building. It was just a civilian building uh, housing media agencies. So um, the uh, children and women bore the brunt of, or they do bear the brunt of every attack that happens simply because they just intentionally target homes and apartments. And there is nothing that can justify these attacks. Um, uh, and you know the the, the kind of um, the kind of um, rockets or missiles that they they they, they use um, has very um, you know uh, like large scale effects because like if they target a certain house, all the nearby houses are going to get affected. Hmm. The windows will get blown out. Um, I mean, I wish I had some pictures to show you, but one of the buildings that was bombed, it was like it looks like. It was just, you know, little uh, collapsed to the ground after it was bombed. And then there was a building right next to it, like the, the wall. The wall, one side of it was just uh, gone. And the house, uh, I don't know, it looked like it was, I mean, just imagine the people living inside that building, what happened to them. Um, it, it's really very um, indescribable when it comes to uh, me describing how the intensity of the damage done to these houses. You know, Gaza is a very densely populated area. Like houses and buildings are very close to each other. So if I'm like, if I'm in the West and, and a bombing happens in the East, I can hear it, I can feel it. The, I can feel the ground shaking. And in the latest aggressions, they, this aggression last week, they, they targeted streets. I mean, they, the airplanes would um, shell the street like eight meters down and the buildings surround it, I mean, two buildings fell just from, from um, targeting the streets. Of course, um, I don't know why they targeted the streets. they thinking maybe that there were tunnels underneath them. But two, uh, two buildings collapsed in, down my street because they targeted the, you know, the, 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 the road, the, the street itself. And, um, uh, of course, I mean, all these buildings, densely populated buildings, I mean, my city and my neighborhood mainly consists of, um, uh, of uh, residential buildings uh, from six to ten floors, and uh, it's very populated, and when a bombing happens in one place, it affects the whole neighborhood. Everybody can see it, they can feel it, and it, it, I mean, um, it shatters everything, it shatters everything. 
so and and the Israelis every time they have a they um, they launch an attack they use a new kind of weapon and they 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 use Gaza as a testing field for their weapons. Uh, in 2008, they used um, the dime uh, dime uh, bullets, uh, the, and in the in the in the Great Return March, they used um, a kind of bullet that pulverizes the tissues. They would aim at the knees and the legs of the protesters and. It wasn't an ordinary bullet. It would pulverize the tissues and the bones, and it could not, uh, the, the, the leg would have to be amputated. That's why we had a very high number of amputees after the marches, uh, like over 130 uh, men, women, and children had their limbs amputated because of the uh, internationally prohibited weapons that they used. And this recent aggression also, they used a new kind of weapon where, I mean, we could feel the ground underneath is shaking. Uh, they use different kind of rockets, and I believe that they used a new kind of um, of missile in in, um, in in the recent attack. So they they do use Gaza as a testing field for their weapons. Yeah, and just like going to wrap up uh, this um, interview, uh, but before that, I just want to uh, ask that. Um, being like a Palestinian woman yourself, uh, how would you see the struggle of uh, Palestinian women with ongoing resistance, uh, especially like in, I mean, in all aspects? Well, um, your first question, uh, I guess, um, um, answers some of that because I talked about my experience as a mother yeah. here, and I think that Palestinian women here they bear the brunt of um, the Israeli, of living under Israeli aggression, occupation, and blockade, because mothers, they're not isolated from their, their, their family. They're, they're, um, they stand side by side with their husbands, their sons, and they, they, have, they find themselves in a position where they have to raise their children to learn about what, it, what occupation is to learn about resisting occupation and that we can't continue to live this life of uh, being dehumanized, of living under injustice, of being deprived of our basic hum human needs, I mean, our, our basic human rights. Um, so we have, we, we, fought, we, we bear a large duty, I mean, a very heavy duty and responsibility to raise our children to learn how to cope with this occupation and to learn how to live in dignity. Um, and I think this is it's not something easy for us as mothers. Uh, women here also suffer because when they lose, when, they lose, when a woman loses her husband or her father, uh, a person that provides for the family, she finds herself um, in a position where she has to be, where her, she has become the provider for the family. And also she has to be the mother and father for the children. Um, and this is not an easy task. I know many people um, who, who live this kind of life because so many young couples lose, uh, young women lose their husbands in, you know, in these attacks. And then they find themselves um, having to provide for their family. Uh, I know there are charities and institutions that help these families, but still they have, you know, they, they become 
the main um, uh, provider for the house and they have to care for their kids. It's not an easy responsibility. And um, they also, I mean, I've seen lots of Palestinian women, despite losing their their children in these attacks, they, they don't. Um, they don't stand in the face of their children as they grow up if they want to join the resistance because they know that resisting occupation is something legitimate under international law. We are not terrorists. We're not, as a mother, I want, I want to see my son live. But mothers, they also will not tell their sons to sit at home and do nothing. They want them to be part of the liberation movement. I think all of us as Palestinian families, we're all part of the liberation process of just being, I mean, living here on this piece of land, being steadfast, being resilient, um, raising our children on these ethics and patriotic values. We are all doing our, our part in the liberation process. Um, it's not only armed resistance, it's cultural resistance. It's uh, also the, the, I mean, the medical, the medical staff everywhere. I mean, they are amazing people. They work under under attacks. They work under every condition and under the COVID also. They, they work 24 hours. Um, it's every part of our society, every person here um, does their duty to um, be part of this, to, to, bring, uh, to bring a good life to, to their own people. And we can't undermine any role that these people play. Um, that's just last week I had this thought, you know, as we were being attacked, I had this romantic thought, you know, it was like I thought about, you know, how people just outside in other parts of the world, they would get married, fall in love, get married, have kids, and then they would see their kids grow up and go through the normal phases of life. But I felt that for us here, people get married and have kids because these kids have to cut eventually will become uh, part of the liberation movement. We have to prepare them for this stage in their life. So uh, it seemed, uh, I mean, it was, I don't know, it made me a bit sad, but also maybe also a bit proud that, um, that we have an extraordinary life. I guess we didn't choose this kind of life. It was imposed on us. I would love to have my kids travel the world and see places and see their own country. But um, I, I have been faced, like other mothers and parents, with, the, with too many harsh facts on the ground, which I can't ignore. And I have to prepare them for what is coming next. Um, so even forming a family here, having your own family, has this served the greater purpose of liberating your country and living you know, in a free and dignified um, Palestine, inshallah, hopefully in the future. Um, so yeah, it's it's a very. Uh, I don't think that um, I'm not sure if this happens when where you come from. You told me about Kashmir, yeah. but um, for us here in Palestine, this is the case, and it has been going on for 73 years now. And um, uh, you know, just every generation passes this legacy to the coming generation, and it you know it just hasn't stopped ever since. Yeah, I just hope that, uh, you know, people of Palestine just see the dawn of uh, freedom one day and yeah, they celebrate freedom and uh, they get freedom from the, you know, violence that the Israeli forces are doing on them. Uh, okay, 
this is like my last question and uh, uh, as an international community uh, how you know do we you know uh, support the people of palestine so like what is uh, your perspective on it and what you would like to su- suggest or you know uh, advice to the international community on this uh, solidarity for the palestine yeah well from what i see is that you know the media the main um, major media outlets in the western world mainly they they block um, they block the palestinian the palestinian narrative or they um or they um twist the facts um they would say for example palestinians were uh died in the recent attacks but then israelis were killed so they would either block the narrative or twist the facts and um the the western viewer i mean would not know what what the what what's really going on here so number one i think that we need to um promote awareness about the palestinian cause um no matter how no matter how small your role is i think everybody has a role to promote awareness about what's really going on like for me connecting um in this kind of um you know webinar here or um meeting between between you and i i think this this is one step and I, i'm willing to talk to as many people um as i can just to tell them the the, the real narrative what's really going on on my part of the my part of the world and um in 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 um in current webinars and past webinars i have uh, participated in people would really just um find it hard to believe that we have electricity cuts this is something you know unbelievable to them like how do you live without electricity and it happens sometimes that during the webinar the electricity would suddenly go off and then i would have to come back 5 minutes later um so yeah number one awareness and in the recent attack on gaza i have seen dozens of um i think it's, it was unprecedented the number of protests that took place around the world especially in america in britain in uh, in even in arab countries um there was there was um people uh people responded to these protests and they still uh they still um do the uh, do these protests till this day and um this is something that is very crucial i think we have to keep making noise we have to um tell the each in your own country tell your government that we are going to keep making noise and being vocal about what the the palestinians are going through about how israel keeps of uh, violating law after law and never be held accountable for any of the crimes that it commits against my people um also to protest for cutting off the flow of money and arms which um uh, which the zionists um continually get every year i mean america provides them with 3.8 billion us dollars a year this is taken from the people's own money um also to boycott boycott the boycott movement is uh, has proved in south africa that it ended the apartheid system and i think the boycott it doesn't only mean um uh, it's 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 on uh on different levels like cultural boycott academic boycott and political boycott and also for i, I think the people should also call call the un to impose sanctions on israel i mean i see we see that you know they they easily impose sanctions on other countries it doesn't take 
much time or effort. But when it comes to Israel, um, no sanctions are imposed. I think they should impose also an arms embargo on uh, on Israel and on put an end to the trade deals between that happen between Israel and other countries like Canada, for example. Um, every person can play a role in, in boycotting Israel and the corporations that profit from the death and killing of Palestinians. So no matter where you are or what your role is, I think everybody can play a role in, um, in helping to bring awareness and to, uh, to the people's minds and to also put an end to this occupation and, um, yeah, occupation of Palestine. Okay. Yeah. Thank you uh, so much, Rana. Like these were very, uh, you know, touching st and stories and narratives that you were sharing. And uh, I just uh, uh, just would like to convey my solidarity to the people of Palestine. And uh, I hope that uh, this violence ends and people of Palestine get their right and dignity. And thank you so much. Thank for, you so much. Yeah, my thank pleasure. You. It was my pleasure. Thank you so Thank much you. for having me. Yeah.